the church at Corinth experienced steady growth. The church there um, was comprised, built of people who had been um, living for, for pleasure, for pursuits, uh, power in some cases, some wanted wealth, some had accomplished and, and, and had those things, and they realized that those things didn't satisfy. They, they, didn't, they didn't suffice. They weren't like, okay, now that I've got it, I'm, I'm totally content. You know, they, they realized, man, there's something missing. There's still, still a gap within. And deep within every person, there's this pulsing question or maybe a combination of questions. Happened in Corinth, it happens today. What is my purpose? Why am I here? Am I right before God? Does, does God even care? Those things resonate within us, and it happened there in Corinth. And, and honestly, it's, it's nothing new under the sun. This same concern has been stirring in every person since the Garden of Eden, literally since the fall of man. So realize that for those who stop and position themselves to listen, they will hear... Um, a call of their heart, if you would, a call to turn to God. Now, understand that our turning to God is actually a response on our part. You know, sometimes we think, well, I turn to God, I give my life to Jesus, and we describe these things. And I, I just say this because it's important to understand who God is and how God is. God is calling people to him. So when we turn to him, we are responding to his invitation to his love. And so it's so important to realize that he never left. He never said, I'm done with you. He's always been calling people to him, to a relationship with him. And so in Corinth, in this time frame we're looking at here in this New Testament letter in a mountain home, God's inviting you to know him. Now, it's, so it's easy to understand, and I believe agree, to truly know him, we must approach him on his terms, Correct. Because let's just keep it simple. God would be considered an authority figure, so to speak, in the, in the ultimate way. And anybody like, that would have authority over your life or have some influence upon you in that manner, they actually do get to set, to a large degree, the terms of engagement, the way you can, can interact, right? You don't just go and walk up to the president and say, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute because I don't agree with what you say. I mean, you can, but then you have free room and board for at least a few weeks after you do that. There's certain terms of you know, how you would engage. It's just really simple. We understand that. Well, to come close, to draw near to the God of all creation, the God of holiness, the God of rightness or righteousness, the God of truth, the God of love, we, we must be made righteous. We just can't come in. And the righteousness we need comes only through a relationship with Jesus, who is the Christ. So that totally makes sense. I think it's easy to see. We just can't come to God and say, hey, here's how it is. First of all, we've got to agree with God concerning our own unrighteousness. Not worldly unrighteousness. We're agreeing with God concerning our personal unrighteousness. It's where we recognize, yeah, I'm a sinner. The Bible would speak of sin or you and I being sinners. And so we recognize that. I need forgiveness. I need that to be dealt with. Well, the only way by which that can be dealt with, the Bible tells you and I very specifically, is to turn to Jesus, to, to agree with God concerning sin and to believe God 
and that the only way your sin can be reconciled and reckoned and dealt with is through Jesus Christ. And it's done by putting your trust in him, asking him for forgiveness, putting your trust in him. So we agree with God, then we believe God that Jesus is the only way by we can have a right standing with him. Then, as the Bible tells you, in that moment, you're born again, born of the Spirit, you're learning to follow God, learning to turn from that which used to keep you from God. Now, all that said, many of you are very familiar with that, but not everyone is. Maybe someone online or even here, you know, if you haven't come into that relationship with Jesus Christ, if this is just a reference point to kind of get to know more about God, realize he set the terms of interaction, the agreement by which you can engage with him. And he offered it. Listen, it's just simple. You, you agree with me concerning your sin. You believe I've forgiven you of your sin. And you put your trust in me to live this new life. So that being said, we have gathered here people that have experienced that. In, in the Corinth in the first century, like now, you know, people were going to church, as we call it, gathering in his name. And as they would gather, you know, they had opportunities to build relationships and, and friendships and even a, a term we, we see used more frequently, um, a support network that we would call our friends. I think that's a good description, wouldn't you say, of, of friends and connections and people that you can be a support to or they can support you. Well, in Corinth, as today, um, the social connections had inadvertently risen to be the most important thing to the gatherings. So when this happens, you know, cliques and groups and divisions start to form. So we've got to recognize that because that, that happens, right? You ever heard somebody say of the church, well, they're just kind of clicky. I don't think that's because they're like a cricket, you know. I think it's just because they're conveying. It's like, you know, they just kind of have their own little thing that they do, their own little sex, their own little groups. Well, we want to understand something, and I'll go into detail here. As we are gathering in the church meetings, we're learning how to do life differently, agreed? We're learning how to love, how to encourage, how to build one another up, how to worship God. We... You, we're in this world. We're born into this world. Horizontally, that's where we love. But then we're born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. So now living here, we're learning to live in love with the eternal focus, with God in mind, with him invading, so to speak, invited into our lives. And now we're not just going to do life the same with the past to get into heaven. We are literally learning how to do life differently. So in Corinth, they're living in this secular culture that's very carnal, very messed up. And they come into a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then they start coming to church. And they bring their baggage. And as they come to church, they learn how to connect with people and all, do all these things. But social becomes more important than spiritual sometimes. Sometimes we need a, a correction. Uh, a course adjustment in how we interact and ultimately how we love God and worship him. And that's what we're going to see as we begin in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Once again, let's pray. God, as we would approach your word, we don't do it with a sense of um, we can do this. We just need to figure it out. We come humbly before you, God, through the work of Jesus Christ, through your death, through your life, your death, your resurrection, your bodily ascension. God, all that you've done for us to cleanse us of unrighteousness but even more so, not just cleansing us, you gave us new life. 
through faith in you, Jesus. And with that, Lord, we ask you to teach us even this day your word. Awaken us to the truth and the principles and the details that we could walk in a way that glorifies you, in a way that is an expression of worship to you. Teach us this morning, this day, God, your glorious grace, your wonderful word, the grace that changes us, teach us how to live that out in this world we live in. For your glory and our joy, we ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, let's look at the first section we have in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul has been bringing forth these truths. God bringing the word into Paul, bringing it through him, the heart of God through the hand of Paul, so to speak. And he just went over some things that were cultural, things that were um, related to being culturally sensitive, like the length of your hair and the role of men and women as far as just within various cultures and not making a big deal about that. We see in verse 16, and now he continues in verse 17. Now, when given these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must be factions among you that those who who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper and ahead of others, and one's hungry and another's drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. All right, so let's just realize, as I've said, they were learning how to do life together. They're learning how to live and love at a higher level. They were, this is all they knew, the world. But now they're coming and gathering together. And as they're gathering together, you know, sometimes they were gathering for the worse and not for the better. Choose to gather for the better. Choose to gather to encourage, to build up, to worship. Because, you know, worship is, we, we have that time we just concluded where we worship by way of music. We're able to join in with those who are gifted and have a heart for the Lord. And they would come even and prepare during the week. And they would come together and they'd use instruments in their voices. And they would help us to enter into that mindset, that attitude, that act of worship. But that's worship by way of music. Your lifestyle, how you live is an expression of worship. What you do is an act of worship. And the way you you engage with people also is the way that you worship God. So there in this church, you know, there were, he wants to give them instructions because he doesn't praise them. I can't, I can't compliment you because there's some things I'd like to see corrected. And he is is very loving, very kind. He knows the, the church there well, which was nice. And they come together, in a sense, for the wrong reasons. Notice in verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions. There's these factions, these groups. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where it was addressed because some had said, well, I, I like Peter's down-to-earth style. Well, I like Paul's commitment. You know, he's, he lives it out. He's, he's willing to suffer for Christ. Well, I like Apollos. He's an orator. He has a good delivery. I like that guy. And then there's the super spiritual group. Well, you know, we just follow Jesus. 
Well, so these factions, and so you knew which group it was because they said, well, I'm a Paul or Apollos. We see that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 as well addressed again at the start of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So he says, I know this is going on, verse 19, because, you know, you, you've made alignments and you've identified the kind of the one you follow. People tend to align with the personalities and opinions and positions, uh, even doctrines and, and even economically, Right? We, we kind of position. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I, you know, we have order even now. We have awareness. You know, some, like for example, we have the children's ministry serving over here. The youth just went over to their building. There's order, different groups. Those groups, have, there's a, posi- a reason for that. But let's not make the personality or the person, or hey, this is who we are, as a point of separation, but rather let it be as a point of order. Does that help? That makes sense because there there will be you know different groupings, but there shouldn't be divisions. And he says that that you're recognizing one over the other, or you're thinking this is better. And he said that's just it shouldn't be that way. That's the way the world works. But you're you're learning a new life. You're learning how to do things different. Carrying on as you glance there in verse twenty, you come together in one place. It's not to eat the Lord's supper. The early church had what was called. love feast or they, the term was agape feast is how we would translate it and so they had these times where they were kind of like what we'd call a potluck everybody just bring what they had they'd meet at a set time they just hang out and have a meal together you know jesus actually modeled that at least having the meal together to his followers obviously so here they would come together for these agape feasts but it it would appear and it seems rather obvious that the agape feast had merged to some degree with communion, with the Lord's Supper. And they kind of let it bend common if they were just kind of doing the, 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 the both of them together, if you would. And so he says, it's not, you, you didn't come to eat the, you didn't take the, come to take the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One's hungry and is another, another is drunk. So what happened was they're bringing the world into the, to their gatherings. And so they'd show up, and you know the early church, uh, much like today, had some people who were, were poor and had some people who were very wealthy. They also had some who were slaves who, had, who would rarely see a good meal. They literally were like borderline starved and forced to work, and they may have a, one good meal every day or two or three. So here's the complexion. And so what was happening as they would come together... They, would, they wouldn't share. So those who had, you know, maybe fit in this little wealthy group, they would have their thing, and others would come in, and they wouldn't interact. They wouldn't be this, you know, very casual, God-honoring unity, so to speak. People wouldn't share openly. They ate at different times. It's kind of like this. Those who, you know, some, they didn't want to share their steaks with the hot dog people. You know what I'm saying? Because some would come in with literally with nothing. And so they're like, mm. and it says here that some would drink. They'd, be, they'd even be a little lit up. They'd be a little tipsy at this meal. And they're just taking it very casually. Not realizing what, not, not choosing to know what's going on. And he said in verse 22, as you can see, what? What? He's basically saying, are you not called out of that way of thinking? Are you not different than the selfishness of the world? I do not praise you he's i'm not complimenting you but you know you got to recognize think about what you're doing 
It's such a pleasant but probing statement because what he's doing is teaching those who would receive instruction, he's giving them instruction. Not, all, not everyone will receive instruction. Uh, if you've been very, around very long, you know that. Some like the conversation, but they don't like the instruction. And he said, hey, listen, this, these gatherings do not honor God as they could. You're doing this and getting together, and, and we're going to see here in a little bit how he breaks down and separates the Lord's Supper from this agape feast. But he says, I don't praise you. And I thought about that. It's like, okay, how was that received? How was that received in the group? And the group would probably receive, well, it's from Paul. We should pay attention a little bit. But how was it received individually? And I think, oh, the same way you and I would receive it. He says, I don't praise you. And you're like, yeah, good point. I know some people that need to hear this. Have you ever done that? Where you hear something like, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this. Here, can I make a suggestion? You don't have to do it right now. You can do it later. Either pull out your ID or check in the mirror, and you'll identify the person who needs to hear it. Because here's what frequently happens in our minds. We, we process things according to our own preference. And so we praise ourselves functionally because we pick our best moments and say, I'm not that selfish. Right? Don't we go, oh, I, I did this, and then I did that, and I helped here. And, you know, not that we're intentionally being egotistic. We just like doing things our own way. Here's a reality check for, for you. I know it's for me. It was really probing that I thought this through this last week. Here's my sentence. Don't measure your kindness and graciousness and benevolent thinking when you're satisfied and doing well and the checking account's good. Measure it when you're hungry, tired, and broke. Now let's just see how spiritual you are, right? How, how gracious, how kind am I when I haven't had anything to eat and it's second service, am I going to be kind or am I going to be hangry? I already ate, don't worry about it. We can, that one's resolved. But do you see what I'm saying? There's certain measures we've got to, like, let's not be shutting down or setting apart or squelching what God would do in our lives because he teaches us, hey, listen, you know, there, I don't praise you on this. There's things that can be changed and improved and, and you can realize and come into understanding in your gatherings and your meetings together, but also realize your meetings together are not to be so common in the sense that we forget the purpose. Let's carry over into the next portion of Scripture. Paul is talking about their gatherings and knowing that they were partaking in the Lord's Supper and blending these other kind of things together. And so we see in verse 23, and we'll carry that through verse 26, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now let's just look in verse 23. And I'll give you, so I'm just going to want to break it down. In the you know, totality, the context of the content, but also there's some standalones that are really good. 
I received that which I delivered to you. Share what you received from the Lord. Paul had received from the Lord. Now, we don't know. I mean, we don't have the, 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 the definitively in Scripture when the Lord spoke to him about this thing we call this communion service or communion time. We don't know. It's not recorded like this. the Lord spoke to Paul at this time. It very well could have. He very well could and probably did speak to him specifically. But he could have, Paul could have received it from Peter and recognized it was from the Lord through Peter. Because Paul knew the things he shared at times was clearly from the Lord to be given to people. And I want you to recognize when you're in the Word, when you're studying the Word, when you're learning to be sensitive and learning to have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying, the Lord will speak to you. And I want, I want to encourage you, re- receive what He says, but share what He shows. So there may be a word of encouragement. You want to text someone. You might want to say something. You don't have to go all profit on them, thus saith the Lord. You can just send a, hey, I just thought you might be encouraged by this. And you send them the verse in the passage. You share what you received. If it benefited you, why not share it with someone else? It's really important that we learn to do that in the sense of being sensitive to God and receive what we receive, which is share. Notice also, though, this is interesting. He reminds the audience there, the audience being us today, that on the night that he received this instruction, this memorial service, guidelines, so to speak, was the same night he was betrayed. He was betrayed. We know who it was. It was Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. But what's interesting about life, and you know this, When you're betrayed, even if logically you can explain it, even if situationally it makes sense, it still hurts. It still cuts. It's still uh, uh, severing a relationship. And Jesus was betrayed. On the night that he established, so to speak, and, and the night that he presented and instituted and implemented this communion service, he was betrayed. Jesus knew there was a fraud among them. Yet he allowed Judas to be there. I believe personally, this is where I lean towards, that that gathering, the Last Supper, as they you know, went through just the normal course of, of you know, the, the, the um, communion, or the, or the juice, you know, whether it was wine or whatever, you, how you want it, fermented or non-fermented, whatever, wine. And then there's the, the meal, and then there's the bread. And then I think at the end is when he then implemented, so to speak, what we know as communion. But prior to those first portions of the mealtime and this last section, I believe he said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And then Judas departed. Judas was the one who seemed to be like everyone else. He fit in. Jesus allowed Judas to be there in the group, but he knew he was a fraud. Why? Perhaps hearing from Jesus was the best thing for Judas. Because he does say in, before you know, in, in that mealtime, he says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Because Jesus knew, listen, you're not turning back. I have reached out to you. I've showed love to you. I've welcomed you. You're still a fraud. And what you do, do quickly. He said some very, like, strong, hard words. They're, they're, they're very true. But he's like, it would have been better if Judas had not been born. That, that's, that's powerful. I mean, that's... Amazing. Judas made decisions in the very face of God to be visually before Jesus, but yet he, he still did his own thing, seeming to fit in, did his own thing, 
And when there was opportunity for personal gain, he betrayed Jesus. That to me is like what you could just call shocking. You know what I'm saying? That he would do that. Now, this is the awkward part, but that's okay. I've met quite a few Judas types who were frauds. In the ministry of pushing 30 years in public positions, um, they don't receive what's said. They make appearance. They have frequent attendance, but they don't really surrender to God. They're often liked, well-received, even promoted in the social setting of the church, but they're more like Judas than Jesus. And I've learned to just keep an eye on them. Guard the flock because those that get into that routine, they're crafty like wolves. And eventually I, I have had to send them out. Here's the dilemma as a pastor and as our leadership team we have to be aware of. I never want to send out a sinner just to make the social setting in church more comfortable. Where am I going with this? People say, I am not going to that church if that person's going. Ah, that person, you know what they did. I'm not going to that church if that person goes to that church. And I have to politely, as much as I can muster, say, okay, see ya. I won't be leveraged by someone's perception. Well, that guy's this and that woman's that and they do this. It's like, well, where should they be? Just out of curiosity. Where should sinners settle to have their soul cleansed? I'm going to make a suggestion. Church, should they not come out of the world and learn what you and I are learning, how to walk with God, how to be, be, you know, glorify God, how to live in this life? Let's not try to make things so comfortable that we keep those people that make it uncomfortable. Because here's what should happen in church. It's, it's not hidden in the bylaws. I think it's just very obvious. Church should be really uncomfortable at times. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the padded chairs are a big improvement, but that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? You, you should have to deal with things that are deep within you. And, and guess what? When I was living for the world and not yet born again, there's a lot of things I did. But when I got saved, born again, and chose to go to church because I, I was sensing that that's how I grew in my relationship with God, it was uncomfortable because the old nature was used to over there. And now I'm coming in and I'm learning how I'm maybe not as kind or maybe not as nice or maybe all this stuff. It's uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. You won't fix something unless it's broken. Is that true? Nobody pulled in the parking lot today I know some of you had to make sure I'm saying this right. Yeah, I, nobody pulled in the parking lot today and said, huh, the check engine light didn't come on. We should tear the truck apart. The check engine light did not come on. We should tear the truck apart. You won't fix something that's not broken. So if we don't receive from the Lord, we're saying it's not broken. So do you see my point? There's a point where you're like, okay, man, if God is stirring and showing you and I when we gather, let's just, just, just be aware. Let's not be a fraud. I, bottom line on all this, don't be a Judas. Judas actually thought he had it down. It's, it's very one of those kind of like, very like, it, it kind of wrecks your Sunday when you're working through these things, you know what I'm saying, in a good way. Because like everybody thought he was cool. He was well-received. Everybody thought he was okay. It was only in hindsight that they looked back and seen he had a little cash flow issue. So that's all your homework. 
1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 3, and what am I talking about concerning Judas' engagement with the other apostles? Because he seemed to be dipping into the change. Kind of greedy. Anyway, don't be a Judas. Jesus is laying out and saying, listen, this is what happened. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, which still stirs a lot of thought in my mind, how committed he was in going through all that, he established what we know as the Lord's Supper. Given thanks, you know that? Jesus gave thanks. As he introduced communion, he's giving thanks. It wasn't just a model that you and I would know to be thankful. He, was, he is, God is a thankful being. Jesus expressed gratitude, thankfulness, which is fascinating to me because he knows everything, he has everything, he is everything. And yet, what's his expression to people consistently? Gratitude, thankfulness. Directing people to the provision of God, the protection of God, the healing work of God. Pretty fascinating. So, Jesus was thankful and he introduced communion, the Lord's Supper. It was for our benefit. It's a remembrance of him. Do you see that in verse 24? As you often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So when, I, when we do have communion like we did last weekend, when we, when we participate in this practice, I, I always remind people, it's not, it's, it's just, this is for a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's born again. Because they have something to remember. They have a relationship. When he says do it in remembrance of me, it's for those who are born again. The, the, what we say, Christians. And so he says, this is, this, take, this is my body which is given for you. And because I want to catch the, the context of this content of what we're reading, we're going to keep working through. I may do it on a Wednesday night and get into detail of what's so beautiful about his body, the Lamb of God given for the sins of the world. But for today, as we catch the flow, we're going to continue in the same manner as he, he said, listen, take, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same manner, he took the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. This do, notice the emphasis again as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me, he's reminding. Notice it's a new covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. It's a way that you interact, a way that you connect. You all have, we all have covenants. Don't think of exclusively like written contract. But there's relational agreements. Even a common thing that's pushed around right now, I think, a little too much is this thing called boundaries. But every agreement has boundaries. You know, every covenant. So here, this is the covenant. This is the means by which you engage with the living God through his body and through his blood. What does that mean? Well, it's because his life was given to bring new life to you, to forgive you of your sins. He died for your sins. He conquered death and hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, proven that he is God, and he can forgive. And so it's through him that we have a, a means to engage, a covenant agreement. You, there's by no other means, there's no other way by which man can be saved. There's no other agreement. There's no other addendum. There's no other part two. This is the means by which we have life in Christ. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Proclaim speaks to to preach. You preach. You, you make known who he is. And how do you do that? Is it by taking communion? Yeah, it is. But what it's declaring, we declare the victory of his death. Do you realize that? Now, doesn't that sound backwards? 
I mean, just think about that statement. We declare the victory of his death. Well, if he died, it doesn't seem so victorious. But his body, which was given for us, his blood, which was poured out for us, when we remember that, we're not just remembering that part. We're seeing the totality of the cross. We're seeing the victory and resurrection. We're proclaiming to the world the victory of his death. And the world is confused. They're they're confounded. And it creates a curiosity. Like, what are they talking about? So communion speaks of relationship. It proclaims to the world who he is. We proclaim the Lord's death. When? Until he comes. Until we see him face to face. Either we depart individually through normal processes, so to speak, of this fallen world, or we depart corporately to the church in what's called the rapture. And we're removed all at once. Because we won't be proclaiming his death in, in, in the same manner in heaven. You understand that? It's till he comes, and then it will be a whole different reality and interaction and relationship. Verse 27, let's move through this section. I can't stop there because there's some stuff that's very practical. So let's catch verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. All right, verse 27 has been confusing for some. At the surface, when we first read it, you know, oh, I don't want to, I'm going to take communion because I don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. And what we find ourselves frequently doing is somehow focusing on worthiness through works. Worthiness meaning, okay, so was I nice last week? Did I not cuss? Was I good? I, okay, okay, I guess I'm worthy now to take communion. That's not what it means. You have to realize and remember and remind yourself your worthiness, your righteousness is through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection, through his works. So it's got nothing to do with what you can add to it. The issue is... is, is you know, recognizing that will never make you worthy. You know, if I, okay, I, I feel like I can take communion this week. That's untrustworthy, correct? I don't trust my feelings. I don't look at an assessment. I don't do the score chart for the week. What could this text possibly be talking about? It's the attitude. It's the mindset of remembering his body and his blood. It's, it's not just the physical, but the, the purpose and accomplishment of his life, death, and resurrection. And basically what's being said is, don't take it lightly. Don't let it be so common that you're dulled by familiarity. You know, over the years, 24 years here, we have taken communion as a church, as a gathering. We've done it on a weekly basis. We've done it on a monthly basis, bi-weekly. We've done it in Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, in small groups. I've encouraged People to get together when they get together, like-minded people to take communion together, you know, but always remember why you're taking communion. Always remember your worthiness. What is your worthiness? 
Your worthiness is what he's done for you, recognizing the relationship he's brought you into. That's your worthiness. Now, that attitude is going to have humility. That attitude is going to say, Lord, I, I need more of you and less of me. This, this last week, I'd have to rate it as a D minus. I didn't do so well. I just, man, I just, I just need more of you, God. I am just looking to you. I'm going to take communion. Because you'll notice, it says in verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a man examine. Let them check, let you check your heart, judge your heart, and take communion. It doesn't say and keep score, and see how you measured up by your standard. Notice what it says. Examine, which is kind of the word scrutinize. It really speaks to um, separate from who you think you are, from who you really are, and just kind of lay it out. Just let it, let it be visible to you, not in a condemning way or an overly pat on the back way, but just examine and then take communion. Can you say before God, Lord, as you examine my heart, as you search me and see if there's anything wacko in me, paraphrase, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's a humble heart. That's a teachable heart. That's a heart that takes communion, that's in communion, because you're, you're, you're completely dependent upon, in, uh, upon him, and you're realizing it. And so as we do that, we want to just make sure it's like we're not so um, at ease or it's so common. Communion, um, it's one of the two ordinances that were implemented by the church, or for the church by God. Baptism and communion, really the only two. And here's one, he's saying, listen, don't let this slip by you. Keep this a very real remembrance, memorial service, an expression, and, a, and, a, and a, um, somehow a realization of the intimacy you have with the living God, and it's because of who he is. Don't get religious, is kind of what I'm saying. Verse 29 says, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. There are consequences... Um, to be in cavalier, too casual in a relationship, right? If you're, say, just recently married and you're just really cavalier, real like, yeah, it'll all work out, really kind of lackadaisical, kind of a dipstick when it comes to your, your marriage, you're going to suffer some casualties. There's going to be consequences to that, correct? At some point, you're, you may even talk about separation and you're going, what the? I don't know. I had a guy tell me in my office as they're about to separate, I said, so what's happening? What, tell me where we're at. Wow, we've hit a, hit, hit a couple you know, speed bumps. I look at him and said, dude, you totaled a car. You need no speed bump. You've got to get your head straight. You're too casual. You're too cavalier. There's consequences to this. Well, it's that way with the Lord. How much more when we just go through the motions of church and we take communion? If we're just going through the motions, we want to realize, I don't want to be too cavalier. I don't want to be uptight, but I want to realize, man, there's, you know, I, want to, I don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. I, I want to discern the Lord's body. I want to remember what he's done. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many basically have passed away. I believe some are sick in the body of Christ for a few different reasons. And, and don't be absolute, this is the only way, this is what he's talking about. I'm talking about there's just variances and there's things that are true. Some are sick because they do not humble themselves before God. And, and they don't believe that God will heal for whatever they're at, whether it's a maturity level or a resistance level, they, they, they deal with more illness. The Bible teaches that. They don't draw near to Jesus in surrender. 
They may have salvation, but they, they, did not, they have not submitted to Jesus and seek his healing touch. Um, in a sense, what I'm saying is it's possible that you could be saved and yet not recognize what he accomplished and that he conquered death and hell. And I, and I believe the Bible teach you, I can show you other places where it teaches that. So I want to say, hey, listen, you know, just say, God, I, I need all that you have. Now, some people are sick, you know, because God has allowed it. Some pick people are sick and die because they live in a fallen world. Now, Paul was dealing with an infirmity, a thorn in the flesh. And he said, God, and he knew how to pray. God, could you take this away? And three times he prayed fervently, and the Lord said, no. I know you, Paul, and I know what's best for you, Paul. And I'm going to allow this to be in your life because this particular weakness in your life helps you to recognize that in your weakness, you rely on my strength. So, Paul, I love you. I'm not punishing you, but I'm going to allow this to be with you so that you could continue to seek me. Verse 31, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And it means to examine, you know, Look at yourself thoroughly to separate. It speaks of, of opening something up and examining it honestly. And if you ever had to put together uh, something, maybe like not quite as extreme as an Ikea thing, but something where you have to open it up and you check the instructions and you confirm all the components are there. I, I would advise doing that before you start so you don't think the kids walked off with one of the parts. But you see what I'm saying? You're just, you're just examining and it's kind of like that with our heart. It's just one examine. It's not condemnation. It's not criticism. It's just judge for yourself because that's when you can be corrected and directed and even instructed. Because he says when we are judged, verse 32, we have our own sense of honesty and intimacy with God. But God also you know, brings in his light of truth and we're chastened by the Lord so that we're not condemned, so that we're not back in the world, so we're not really... Um, Functionally, some are not even saved, but they think they are, but they don't, let the, they don't let the Lord correct them. Chastening speaks of instruction, education, to train up. So God trains up his children in the way that they should go. And guess what? When he trains you, it, it, sometimes it's painful. Some, sometimes it's not what you were wanting to do. I mean, if you don't understand the concept, I hope you're not a parent. But if you are a parent, you totally get the concept because you have to teach your kids things that they don't want to do, but you know what's best for them. God knows much more for us as his children. Verse 33, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Shouldn't have to be said, but it's said. Consider one another. We, God, we were carried through COVID time with a reference verse um, it was on my heart right from the very beginning, and it's Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider, be aware, and really think through about the other person. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I'll set in order when I come. If you eat, if you need to eat, eat before you go. Grab a burrito, eat it before you show up in the parking lot, don't be eating in front of people. Kind of, you see what I'm saying? It's really simple stuff. He's like, if you gotta eat, eat. But at the same time, you know, be real, be truthful. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, that's a word from the Lord. That's a word to you and I. It's a word Paul encouraged to the church. But it wasn't about Paul. He's just saying, hey, when, when, you know, things are disorderly at times and things are constantly in a flux. And the beautiful thing about a gathering of people is there's always this transitional dynamic, this maturity element, these different factors that are always in play. So there's always things that need to be adjusted and changed. It's beautiful. And God says, listen, I'll set the things in order when I come. 
He'll set things in order on a regular basis. I believe that's a, a, a submitted, surrendered, humble leadership. We'll constantly be aware of that. So will an individual. And at the same time, when he comes, he'll set things in order globally. He's going to take care of things in a manner that which, you know, only he can do. He's going to set things in order. So let him do that in your heart now. Let him do it in our gatherings, knowing he's going to do it when he returns and we see him face to face. So have the worship team come up. We're going to close with Ephesians chapter 3, if you would turn there with me. And as we wrap up our time, at least at this point. If you would stand with me and we will read that. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. I believe this capsulizes, once again, kind of some things we've looked at and gives us an encouragement in a practical sense. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the stirring in our hearts individually. Thank you for walking us through as a group. May we be teachable people with a desire to have ears to hear, a sensitivity to your voice, that we would long to mature and grow and that we would not take our fellowship for granted, we not just um, be lighthearted or cavalier about the beautiful work you're doing in our lives and how you've knit us together. God, may we just be sensitive to the Spirit, to what you're doing. May you be glorified in our conversation, in our interaction. May we long to know more of you and less of this world. That we would be shaped and formed for your purposes. That somehow, God, the light that you've placed within us could shine in the world we live, that we would have influence in the workplace, in the home, in the various places where people that need to know your love would somehow see your love in us. May you get the glory. We thank you. We sing this song to you, Jesus, in your glorious name we pray. Amen.